I want to add my uh, welcome to Lyndon's. It's great uh, to see you here today as we come to think through what I find is one of the hardest things to talk about ever. Our statisticians tell us that approximately 95 million people die every year. That means every second, three human beings are entering either he- heaven or hell. Three, six, Nine, twelve, fifteen, eighteen, twenty-one. It's real, isn't it? By the time I'm finished this talk, 7,200 men, women and children will have gone forever to a place of everlasting joy or a place of everlasting happiness. Sorry, a place of everlasting pain. That's the reality that's before us. That's the claim of the Bible. This is the reality that we see. And today, as we start this four-week look at the topic of heaven and hell, it's my prayer that these four weeks will change us all. Uh, That we both be confronted and comforted with God's view of reality. That we will experience tears of joy about what is before us and tears of sorrow at what is before others we love. It's not going to be an easy four weeks by any stretch. Um, The first two, particularly tricky. But I want to encourage you to try and make the whole series of these talks because they're not going to be balanced talks. I'm not going to even out each one to kind of go, oh yeah, but we've got to remember this side. I'm going to explain clearly the doctrine of hell and then explain clearly what God has told us about heaven. And so really we need to come and take these four weeks all together and have them as a whole But the whole, I've got to say, changed my life. It was understanding the magnificence and the magnitude of this topic that saw me change my job, saw me change countries, change what mattered most to me and propelled me to see Jesus with even greater amazement and wonder than I did before. It was looking at this very thing that shaped my passions and my desires. So why don't we pray now that God, through His Spirit, And through his word would mold us and shape us to be more like him. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word and think through this morning, the reality you speak of that is called hell. We ask that throughout this series, you would shape us, that you'd impact us with the truth of what this message is, that your spirit would so provoke us to recognize who we are and who you are and to see the world from your view that we might come away from hearing you speak today changed forever that our eyes may be fixed on what matters most and that we might live our lives with much greater joy and service of the god who rules everything and loves all amen well if there's one surefire way to stop a conversation in its tracks it's this Just start talking about hell. I was sitting on a plane yesterday, coming back from Melbourne, from the conference we're at as a staff team, uh, with a book open in front of me, entitled Heaven and Hell. I meant to bring it up here with me. It's the book that we've kind of based this whole series around. We've got them on the bookstall downstairs if you want to grab them. And really, much of what I'm saying to you today comes from this book. But man, (laughs) you're kind of like sitting there ready on a plane thinking, what's this guy next to me thinking? Like, I'm just, well, who is this guy? You know, no one wants to talk about hell. We want to be happy. We want to have fun. We want to do good. We want to seek well-being amongst us. I mean, that's the mantra of, of our society today. The thing that pumps through our 21st century veins, the controlling principle of pretty much the entire population of the world is this. I do what I do. I think what I think. I act how I hack, act. Because the most important thing to me is happiness it's what we seek isn't it human well-being it's what we're about it's the underlying drive by which we measure our morals our success our actions our worth how can i bring happiness and well-being to, to me to, to those around me that's just that's just what we think it's what's the air we breathe it's it's what we've grown up on Well, in that context, thinking like a 21st century sophisticated member of society, the concept of hell just seems so repulsive and barbaric, doesn't it? 
horrifically unjust. Who would believe in a hell? I'm not about hell. I'm about loving people. I'm about seeing good go out. I'm about happiness and well-being. As I've been thinking through this topic over the last few weeks, um, I've been reading more of that book than I was reading on the plane. I've been sitting in a coffee shop. I've been kind of having it open. And it just, if I'm honest, I've been embarrassed. I've been embarrassed because every time I read it, I kind of put it face down on the table when I get up. (laughs) I'll make sure it's tucked in somewhere where others aren't going to see the, the title. And I think that's what we do with the topic of hell. We tuck it away as kind of like the ugly uncle in the family that you don't really want to see. You're just like, well, we don't want to know about that. Let's just stick that away somewhere and have nothing to do with it. Partly because I don't want to think about the pain that it involves for people that I love. Because that hurts, doesn't it? And also because, well, I do love God. And I want to see God be seen in the best light he can. I want him to look as good as he possibly can. I want him to be attractive and and compelling. So I censor him. I airbrush the bits that I think aren't as palatable to the world around me out. And I put forward a picture of God so often that's just about his goodness for us, his love for us. Do you ever find yourself doing that? To others? Or to yourself. What we're experiencing there is a deeply rooted clash between God's view of reality and our view of reality. My guess is you do do that, like me. And you've got to hear this, this thing of like, oh, God sees the world this way, but I see it that way. And there's this dissonance, there's this frustration. And here's the thing. We can't both be right, can we? We can't both be right. Whenever you find yourself disagreeing with the Bible, naturally opposed to some action or command of God, I think it's actually an exciting time. It's a time that God is saying, you know what? You haven't got all your values and your principles lined up with me. You're viewing the world, the way you're seeing things is wrong. Come and let me show you the right way to view it. Come out of the position that you're in and see this from my view, from my angle, that you might see things rightly. You might see things the way I made them. It's an exciting time. But it means we often need to change and we often need to do deep work. And we're going to be doing that today. Some deep work in working through how we understand ourselves and how we understand God. Because I I think there are things that we don't grasp. We don't speak on the topic of hell because we don't understand its importance. So let me give you four reasons why hell is important. Four reasons. There'll be a a bit of our time together. But number one, death is not a spectator sport. It's not a spectator sport. Everyone will be intimately involved with death. We can't just sit back and watch the game play on and think, oh, well, I'm going to switch it off now. We actually will face it, whether it's losing friends or family or spouses that we love and ourselves. Every single person in this room must deal with death. You might think that some biblical doctrines, they're kind of secondary, you know. Um, they don't apply to us that much. Instructions to employers, maybe you're not an employer. Or instructions to, to parents, maybe not a parent yet. And so you're like, you know, it's true and stuff, but I don't need to worry about that or... Um, The word of God to the rich. I'm not that rich. So why do I need to listen to what it's saying here? Well, I want to say that would be a mistake anyway. 2 Timothy 3 says all scripture is breathed out by God. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and, and training. So we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But not one of us can ever dare to say the doctrine of hell doesn't apply to us. It does. Hebrews 9.27 on the screen says, Man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. Rowan is destined to die once and after that face judgment. It's talking about me and you. This is the reality of what will happen. Death, judgment, and then hell is the certain and just destiny of every unsaved sinner on the face of this planet. And we are all born sinners. All of us. 
we are all, without exception, intimately involved with this topic. Death is not a spectator sport. Number two, hell is not some idea in the margins of God's word either. Sometimes we kind of want to push it off to the side and go, oh, it's just kind of a a preliminary, a, a kind of side issue that we don't need to deal with that much. It's intrinsic to the central point of the Bible. The Old Testament is full of, of God's fierce judgment, is it not, on his enemies? That he judges them for their wrong. It's a foreshadow of hell. It's a foreshadow of the justice that will come. And the New Testament shows that Jesus is what our Savior. Built into that word Savior is the fact that we need saving. He's the Savior from what? From the right penalty we deserve. Jesus actually has more to say about hell than he did about heaven. Listen to his seriousness, the Savior's words, himself, the one who we trust around the issue of hell. Matthew 5, 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It's not a side issue. He is like, this is serious. Or or Luke um, 12, verse 5. But I'll show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. The Bible speaks more of God's wrath than his love. Did you know that? And here's the thing. God... If God in his wisdom has chosen to give us so much information on hell, shouldn't we pay attention to it? Shouldn't we listen and not kind of push it to the side? Shouldn't that shape the way we view the world? If we start thinking, oh, this doesn't really, if uh, this is something that needs to be pushed aside, maybe we've got something wrong. It's not some issue in the margins. Number three, there's only one remedy. The reason we need to be serious and actually check out what hell is about is because there's only one remedy. We don't have a range of options before us. We can't say hell is dreadful, hell is real, but there are so many ways of avoiding it. I don't need to worry about it. It'll be fine. Like, yep, it's real. It's there. John 3.36, Jesus says, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Whether you're a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Christian, an atheist or an agnostic, the only way to escape the certainty of hell for you and for me and for every person on the face of the planet who has ever lived or ever will live is by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everyone else will be lost. There's only one remedy. When people reject the idea of hell, it actually does matter because we we lose the sense of urgency before us, the sense of why Jesus came to die. We write him off. If we throw out hell, we might as well throw out Jesus. What did he come for? You know how easy it is to lose doctrines? If we keep pushing hell to the side, we could lose it totally. It's happened before. Uh, The gospel at times throughout history has been distorted and submerged, meaning that for hundreds of years, generations died in their sin because Christians had not fought for the truth. I do not want my kids growing up in a church or an age where the Christian church knows nothing of hell. Do you? What is the point of it? If hell is real, I want them to know. Otherwise, I'm living in dreamland. Why should we think about hell? Because we're all going there. Unless we take the one only route of escape. That those who trust Jesus will be delivered from God's judgment. Nothing is more crucial than understanding hell. And the only way of salvation from it. We need to be thinking through hell. And I want to give you one more reason why. It's a little bit longer. Hell challenges the way we view the world. 
It challenges our human-centeredness. Have you ever wondered, sitting there thinking, okay, so I'm a Christian, I trust in Jesus, I've been promised eternal life, yet how will I sit in heaven knowing that others are confined to hell? How, how does that work? I know that for me, that's been a question. And we'll answer some of, more of this in, in detail next week, but I just want to show you something that illustrates how sick I am, and I think we are. Imagine yourself for a second, you're in heaven. You're looking at the glory of Jesus, the lamb that was slain for us. You're gathered together with great multitudes of angels around the throne. And then all those who've been bought by Christ together, celebrating who Jesus is and what he's done. Seeing the lamb face to face in the presence of God, perfected bodies forever. Looking at the new heaven and the new earth and being excited about what God has done. Will you be unhappy? If being with Christ forever is not enough for you and me, if you think that sinners confined to hell will spoil your joy in God's presence, then I think we have got the world focused on ourselves and humanity rather than God. We think (laughs) that we've let the influence of the world creep in and affect us. We're so self-absorbed, so self-important, and we think about ourselves and others. We say, oh, this is the most important thing. Humanity is the most important thing. And we're like, we've missed the fact it's about God. It's not about us. It's about Jesus who died. Stop thinking about me and think about him. We accept the concept of heaven is a place of perfection and joy because it focuses on what runs through our veins. Happiness, pleasure. But hell we can't stomach because it requires us to think that there is someone else more important than us. I want to kind of push on this a little bit deeper and help us to think through this man-centeredness, this human-centeredness that we have. Just think about the way we're made, right, and the Ten Commandments. So people generally seem to agree across the world that murder is wrong. Thou shalt not kill. Like, yes, we get that. That stealing is wrong. Yes, that's, that's awful. We've got this deep-seated moral value of utter horrificness of the wrongs that go on, like murder and rape and stealing. They're just awful. They, they, they repulse us. And we're like, if someone does those things, they should be punished, right? We have this deep sense of punishment and justice that must happen. But the commands that have no impact on our human welfare seem to have no impact on our consciences. Breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods but me. Do you get angry about that? Are you repulsed? Are you horrified when God does not get the glory he deserves? We do it and and no one bats an eyelid. When people don't love God, we're like, yeah, yeah, that's kind of normal. When when we love God in a half-hearted way or an apathetic way, it just seems to be the expected norm. You're like, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? do you see the difference we're so caught up in ourselves and our own service of ourselves that we don't see the offensiveness of the first commandment of what we're actually doing to god friends hell smashes this man-centered pretentiousness this facade this smoke screen that we put up it smashes it to pieces and says Hell tells us that there is an awesome and holy God in whose eyes we are unspeakably and inexcusably guilty. Hell shows that sin is so horrific, so serious, that not only in its effect to others, but in its effect to God, that it must be punished with an eternity of suffering. Yes, murder is wrong and it's it's right to be angered at it. Yes, rape and stealing and all these things are, are, are awful. But we need to lift this and go, our rebellion against God is even more awful than that. We need to be as repulsed to see how offensive this is to God. Because sin is first and foremost about him. Sin is first and foremost against God. Dawn read for us the confession in Psalm 51 of David. 
I don't know if you know the story, but David is the king of Israel. Uh, he's the king who was after God's own heart. He led Israel well. He, he'd been doing exactly what God wanted him to do. But one day he's on the roof and he sees Bathsheba across the other side, bathing in a bath. He sleeps with her. Uh, she's married to someone else, Uriah. She gets pregnant. Uriah is battling, who for? King David on the battlefront. She gets pregnant. David's like, what am I going to do? So he gets Uriah put to the front line. So Uriah's killed to cover up his own sin. That's repulsive. This guy has stolen someone else's wife. He's probably treated her in a way that isn't appropriate at all. I mean, who's going to say no to the king? And then he's gone and got the husband killed just so no one knows about his repulsiveness. That's the context. And what does he say? What does he say when he's realized, when he's confronted by Nathan about what's gone on? Verse 3 of Psalm 51. I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me against you, God. You alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Sin is against God. We're going to reorient our world. It's not just against others. It's first and foremost, and it's in its biggest atrocity, against God. It's repulsive to Him and deserves an eternity of punishment. Now, if that feels wrong to you, that, that David should say that, against you and you only have I sinned, if that kind of gets you like, that's not right. That's how it makes me feel. I feel like it should be Uriah and Bathsheba, right? How can he say against you and you only have I sinned? Like, this is awful. Just shows how man-centered I really am. How much I think about me and human race rather than the God who upholds and sustains everything. So is that I, I totally miss what's going on here that hell corrects this view of. Now, I want to be clear. I don't, for one second, want to minimize the wrong he's done against Uriah and Bathsheba. It, it's wrong. He has wronged them. And I don't want to say, oh, that, that's little compared to this. Like, I want to, don't want to bring that down in any way, but I want to say sin is first and foremost against God. Because Bathsheba was his child. Uriah, his son. The world that God made is in rebellion against him. Sin is against God. And what David did and what we do is walk up to him and punch him in the face by treating God and his creation appallingly. Hell corrects our view of what matters. Hell corrects our view of where the greatest wrong is. Think about it. There's a guy in a bar, and he has a fight with another guy, punches him in the face. They have kind of walks out. It's done. Breaks the guy's nose, but, you know, and that's, that's not good. Shouldn't have done it. Then the same guy walks home and has a fight with his parents. He yells at them. He punches his dad in the face and breaks his nose and punches his mum in the face and does the same thing. Now, there's something about that that's worse, isn't it? There's something about doing that to your parents that's somehow a little more wrong. And then the police are called. The police come to the door. What does he do? He breaks the nose of the policeman. Seems to be his habit. Now, again, the policeman is representing that local government. And there's something now that he can... That's, that's you you've punched a police officer. That's now worse again. Our legal system puts that higher again. Then he kind of somehow gets out of the... the the, the legal system and walks past the prime minister and punches the prime minister in the face, breaks his nose or her nose. Now, there's, there's going to be more penalty for that, isn't there? Why? Because the prime minister represents the nation and has the authority of the nation. And this is such an order of magnitude wrong that you would do this to the prime minister, the, the, the senior servant of the country. That is so wrong. And then... He punches Obama in the face, breaks his nose. How do you reckon that's going to go? That's not going to end well. Because while Obama is just human, just like us, his office, his role is of one of the most powerful countries in, in the world. 
He has at his beck and call disposal of so much armory. He holds so many things. And to, to do that is such an order of magnitude. Imagine the God who owns everything, whose air you breathe, who allows your heart to beat, who is at his beck and call anything he wants, everything he made. And we say, nah. I don't think you exist. I I don't want to treat you as you require. It's phenomenally offensive to him. It's punching him in the face. Friends, hell corrects the human-centered view of the universe that we have to God's view of things. And I hope you're seeing that. And I hope you're seeing what a precarious position it puts us in. We're all there, like David. We've been sinful from birth, rebellious against God from the very day we breathed our first and before. We need to correct our human-centered view of the world. And it's funny, you know, one of the biggest, as I I chat to people about Jesus and about God, one of the things I hear is, ah, I just don't think that God would be like that. I'm like, really? Like, I get that it rubs us the wrong way. It kind of jars us. But what's at the heart of that view? The heart of that view is, well, it's all about me. If, if God exists at all, I want to I want to serve a God that's about me. He should fit my conception of what he should be like, shouldn't he? He should exist to please me for my benefit, to, to work for my pleasure and my happiness. Like he's some sort of heavenly bellboy. We ring the bell. God, please go and bring me that thing now. He comes, thank you very much. I don't need you anymore. Bye. That's repulsive to him. It should horrify us as much as serial rape does. But it doesn't. Because through my veins pumps me. Man-centeredness. Can you imagine? I liken it to this. Imagine standing there one morning as the sun rises and yelling with all your voice, Sun, go back down. I'm not ready for the light yet. I want to sleep in. I'm like, I don't think that you should be rising right now. I want you to go down. And when it's rising, oh, son, I want you to be a little hotter. Please be a little hotter to serve me. Do you see how pathetic that is? <laughs> I can't tell the sun what to do. It's the sun. We can't form our conceptions of God around who we are. We are his creation. He made us. He sustains us. And he loves us. And when we rebel against him, when we hurt his creation and his people in a way that he hasn't given us authority to, it's phenomenally offensive and deserves hell forever. Hell smashes the human-centered view that runs through our veins and frees us from slavery to ourselves. Frees us from this slavery to serve me, to make everything about me and what I want. And puts at the center the true and living God who is great and good and just. Who made the world rightly to serve him in the right way and who upholds justice. So, what is hell? What does the Bible have to say? Well, let me run through a few things um, reasonably quickly. Firstly, hell is real. It's a real place created by God. Often people think it's some sort of metaphor, like, oh, you know, it talks about it like a lake of burning fire and sulfur, or it's kind of like flames that never end out, or like where worms won't, won't, won't stop and eat us. And like, you know, it's just imagery. I'm like, sure, I agree. It, it, I, don't, I don't think, uh, there's this quote from Tim Keller. Someone once said to Tim Keller, do you really believe in the flames of hell for eternity? And he said, oh no, (laughs) much worse. See, when does the metaphor ever be worse than the reality it represents? The the wedding ring is a symbol, a sign, a pointing forward to a a covenant that that I've made with Sarah. But marriage is much more than this, isn't it? When I see a sign that says steep hill ahead, like the arrow is going down, like, whoa. Now, that sign helps me look at what's there, but when I get to the hill, the hill, the hill is real. Is it not stronger 
and more real and more dangerous than the sign? How foolish we are to minimize what the sign points us to. The, the, the kind of concepts that are used to say, do you see how bad this is? To go, oh, it won't be that bad. These are just metaphors. Metaphors always work. Signs always work by pointing to something um, that's, that's going to, the reality is going to be greater than the sign. Jesus speaks of hell as a place. Literally, the word that he uses, um, it's topos in Greek, which is where we get topography from, like maps. It always means like a literal place. Hell is a place. Uh, he uses this word for it called Gehenna. Um, now, I only tell you that for one reason, because Gehenna was an actual place outside Jerusalem. It was a place where um, the Israelites, before Jesus, when they turned and worshipped the gods of Molech, they sacrificed their own children. They burnt them in this place called Gehenna. It was a place of burning children. It was awful and wretched and horrible. It was a place of defilement, of heart-wrenching grief. What are you doing? By the first century in Jesus' time, it had become a rubbish dump where offal was burned all day long, every day. People in Jesus' day associated this place with smoke and stench and worms eating away this festiness that existed. It was all that was hideous and foul. And that is the sign and metaphor Jesus chooses to use to illustrate the reality of hell. Surely it can't be any better than that. Hell is a real place. And it's created by God. He, he made it. It's not an embarrassment on the side. It's part of his creation. It exists for his glory. Uh, Revelation 4.11 says God created all things. Everything that is was made by him. That means that must include hell, mustn't it? In Matthew 25.41, uh, Jesus says this, and what I want you to watch for is the very end. Um, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you see the last line? The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. God made hell. It was by God's command that the everlasting fire was prepared, prepared for Satan and all those in rebellion against him, for that is right. In the same way we see those horrific things to humanity committed, so it is for us and all who rebel against God to be put away. Hell is a real place. But it's also proportional. Although we'll be punished, we won't all be punished to the same degree. So Luke 12, Jesus says the servant who knew his master's will, but did not do it, will be beaten with many stripes, but the one who didn't know the, the, the will of his master and still did the same thing will be beaten with few. There seems to be a discrepancy based on the knowledge of how much we know. But this isn't our get-out-of-jail-free card. It's like, awesome, I'll be in first-class hell. It, it doesn't work that way. The picture is, it will be worse for those. It's not a picture of, oh, it's not that bad. It's a picture of making it worse and worse and worse. Matthew eleven twenty one to 24 says, It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Who's he talking about? Capernaum. What was he talking about to them? They rejected the testimony of Jesus. We are judged based on how much we know. Hell is proportional to what we've done. It's not like, well, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. It does and it gets worse. In Mark 12, 38 to 40, there's these scribes who had the scriptures. They had God's word. They knew it inside out. But what were they? Hypocrites, greedy, dishonest. They rejected Jesus. How will it be for those who brought up in a Christian home or exposed to the Christian message who remain opposed and uncommitted to Jesus? How hard will it be? How hot could it get? Donnelly, who writes that book on heaven and hell, let me quote him. The deepest pits of hell may well be reserved not for the notoriously wicked, but for those who from childhood were familiar with the message of salvation, yet never embraced it themselves. 
we're judged on what we know. Now, we're not told how the punishment will be graded. graded. However, it will be just and fair. And nowhere does it give us the space to go, oh, it won't be that bad. I want to look for a moment on the issue of justice and fairness. Because I think that's often where, where we come to when we come to how, how is this... How is this just and why is that? I want to think through again part of our presuppositions that's in us. See, I think we as a society struggle with the idea of justice. We struggle with punishment. Do we really want to punish someone for the wrong they do? Like, I don't want to hurt them, but I want them to be kept safe from hurting others because hurting others is, I mean, our well-being is the greatest good. But we kind of find punishment more and more distasteful. The smacking laws. We're like, oh, we don't want to smack. I'm not going to make any comment pro or against that. That's why we need Super Nanny. Do you guys, you guys have seen Super Nanny? Or the, the UK TV show? If you haven't, UK TV show about this woman who's Super Nanny. She comes into the family and the family kind of haven't been able to discipline their children. Their children are crazy, hanging off the rafters. She comes in, she lays down the law. She says, this is how you do it. Snaps everyone around, keeps them, holds them to what they say, disciplines and the kids are like angels again, like, whoa, things kind of happen. You've got to follow through, right? But I think we're experiencing in the way we think the fruit of the values we operate in as a society. And bear with me for a while on this too. Uh, some kind of shifting I'm still trying to do. Um, I think our society has abandoned the ultimate truth. We've abandoned this idea of right and wrong. And we've said it, it's all relative. And this is why I think we have troubles with punishment. And I'll show you why. We say it's all relative. You know, what you do in life, it doesn't matter how you act, how you live. You can choose whatever you want to do as long as you don't what? As long as you don't, big voice, hurt others. It's what we say, Right? You can do whatever you want. The greatest good is not what's right and wrong as long as you don't hurt others. There it is. Human-centeredness again. And that's the issue. Punishment hurts others. Now we're at like this point, well, what do I do? I see there's something right about punishment, but my, my very veins pump this human-centered idea that I don't want to hurt others. How do we, how do, we do this? There's a, there's a problem in our worldview, isn't there? I mean... Punishment is always supposed to hurt or to cause pain. I think about when I was a kid and I got in trouble often and mum would send me to my room, right? That was the punishment. You can't be out here, you can go to your room. And what would I reply? That's all right, all my toys are in my room. See, you can't make me feel pain. You can't hurt me. I'm trying to undo that. As an aside, I reckon that's where the the English got it wrong with with, um, the Australians because they sent all their prisoners to Australia. That's no punishment. That's brilliant. It's like a beaches, like a sun. Like they're thinking, yeah, let's send them all to Australia. We're like, whoa, this is great. It's like being in my bedroom with an Xbox. Like, this is excellent. <laughs> no, but if you're not going to smack your children, then you've got to come up with something that causes some sort of hurt to them, some sort of pain. I'm not saying in a sadistic way, but that's what the point is. It's to show you that this is wrong. Hell is God acting justly to punish for what we've done. Right and wrong is ultimate. It's not relative. And punishment must come because of that. When you hear the horrors that occur, you get angry. You want justice to be done, don't you? It must be done. There's a rightness to justice and punishment. The whole worldview of no pain is just not livable. You can't, you can't do it. Hurt and justice go hand in hand to stop wrongdoing. We've got to get past our kind of conflicted and man-centered feelings on these issues and see how it doesn't stand up and have a look at how what God offers does. Miroslav Volf is a Christian writer that you probably won't know because he's got a massively long, awesome name. Um, but he lived through... Uh, and was involved in the Balkan Wars in the early uh, 1900s, 1912, kind of grotesque wars that went on, awful, about 122,000 people killed. Um, he was involved in them. And this is his quote, and it's beyond the screen. He says, The practice of nonviolence 
requires a belief in divine vengeance. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. But we don't see that. Let me just read for you for a second, and it's going to critique our culture. He says, suggest imagining that you're delivering a lecture right now in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture you are giving is a Christian attitude towards violence. The idea that we should not retaliate since God is, perf- God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you'll discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of that idea. Let me unpack this a little for you. The idea that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. That's what we hold. I shouldn't be violent, right? I don't want to be violent in this world. That's a kind of right thing, the biblical thing. Uh, and so God shouldn't be violent. God shouldn't judge. Um, he's like, you can only believe that when you live in fairyland called suburbia, Auckland. He's like, he says, in a scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die, that idea. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. What he's saying is, it's only the foolish, comfortable, middle-class Westerner that can live with the idea that living in non-violence with each other is helped if God never judges. Why? Because either we need to stop the violence of humanity or trust in a far greater, just, holy God to punish justly. He's living in a war zone where there's all sorts of horrific stuff going on. He's like, you can't stand there and say non-violence. This must be stopped. The only way you can say, no, no, don't be violent is if you trust in a God who will ultimately stop it who will ultimately deliver justice. Either we need to stop the violence of humanity or we need to trust a far greater, just and holy God to punish justly. And the good news is there is that God. There is a God who will judge and he will judge every wrong. That means I can let go if others don't. That's God's will is to judge. That's the truth that nourishes my ability to forgive, to let go when the horrific happens, to stand back and say, I can forgive you and justice will be done. I don't need to deliver justice, but you will. That's the only way we can do it. Otherwise, we must enact justice, shouldn't we? Forgiveness requires a just God so long as he remains just. Unless we wipe it under the, under the carpet and say, oh, we'll just let it go and there's no injustice. Then there must be a God who punishes. Because justice is just right. There's more to say there, but we need to, I need to stop. And number four, hell will be ruled by God. I'll go through these real quick. Um, God is present in hell. So often you hear people say, oh, hell is separation from God. No. It's separation from God's goodness. It's everything that we have that, that, that is good, that we look forward to, that we long for. There's relationships, the joys of life, all taken out because they're provided by God. We are getting what we ask for, life without Him. But He holds us there. He is in control. Have a look. I'll show you from Scripture. Uh, Revelation 14.10, talking about the beast. Um, John says, He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. God is present in hell, enacting his justice, holding people where they are. It's not like they want to leave, although they will. It's that they are still there, horrifically being even worse than we are now, in rebellion against God, and God is executing his judgment. It's eternal. It it does not end. The Bible knows nothing of of a second chance. And the fire does not go out, Jesus says. The fire will not burn us up, although that's what we'll desire. Uh, this worm that kind of eats away the idea in Luke, Luke um, 24, it's probably our consciences. 
forever. Being in this place, knowing what we have done and seeing it from God's point of view, every time we'd heard the words spoken, reminding us forever and ever and ever. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, uncontrollable sorrow. I'm not trying to scare you. Thinking that, that Jesus and, and God is just trying to come and shock you into trusting in him is like saying to the doctor when he gives you the cancer um, prognosis, oh, you're just trying to scare me to go and eat better. No, this is the reality of where you're at. Oh, I'll be all right. I'm not that bad. No, th- th- this is the reality of, of what's going on. God isn't trying to scare us. He's showing you reality. The thing is, reality is scary. Imagine a world without anesthetics and analgesics, no pain relief ever. How quickly we run to paracetamol that will never quench, no relief, no end. Sorrow, weeping, worms, flame. It's hard to imagine anything worse, isn't it? But there is. The fact that God is there enacting his judgment. We ridicule the idea of hell. We, we see it as melodramatic, as over the top. But on the final day, all will change their tune. No longer will there be laughing at flames, but longing for them to consume. If only the punishment was burning oil and that was all it was. So how will we respond Friends, Satan's goal is to drive you gently and safely into the arms of hell. That's his aim, is to lull you in and say, keep thinking about yourself at the center. Keep thinking about mankind. Just push off. That God, yeah, isn't he? He's just not nice. (laughs) Yet as you look to God, you see, yes, justice, but also mercy. That Jesus would face this for me. Hell, for those who trust in Jesus, for us today, is unnecessary for everyone. We, we don't need to go there because the price has been paid and offered to you. Trust in what Jesus has done. Take him at his word and put your life in his hands. Shift from that human-centered view and recognize who he is. Stop mucking about with yourself and look to him. Yeah, you can try and theologize it away. Satan loves that too. You know, these are metaphors. Um, you know, the Bible, it's not really saying that. And there's, there's two, there's this kind of the place of the dead. And then there's this other one. And, you know, we can't really be certain. If God were loving, he wouldn't do this. The Bible does not make sense if hell doesn't exist. What is Jesus saving me from? How is he just? If there is no hell, God is just diminished to some other human-like person. We can have the view, oh, it'll be, I'll deal with it later. I'll look at it later on in my life. But here's the thing. You will go to bed tonight sustained by the hands of an angry God. What makes you think you'll ever wake up? And if you do, what makes you think you'll wake up in heaven? Death is real. My rebellion is real. I need the only offer of salvation in Jesus. Or I can let popularity drive me so much that I won't speak of this. My friends don't find it great that I talk about hell. Now, I'm not saying we talk about it all the time and stand on the street corner and burst it out, but surely we must have an appropriate amount of this principle of hell controlling our lives. Will you really let your desire to be liked let you spend an eternity in hell? Do you value your friends' opinions of you that much? Are you that self-centered? Friends, hell is not a nice topic. It's not a topic that we stand here and go, yes, I I love, but in some senses, on the last day, and I say this carefully, we will be able to stand back and say, yes, it exists for God's glory. And in it, he is somehow more awesomely and, and more, more rightly glorified. I know it hurts. I have family too that, that don't trust in Jesus. And it pains me that 
This is the reality. But oh, the more it pushes me, doesn't it? To speak of the salvation that's offered to them for free. As you hear these words today, Jesus is calling you to himself. Trust me. I've done it for you. I've faced death in your place. I went to hell on the cross. I faced that for you. Do you see how utterly repulsive it is to say, no thanks? Let's pray. Father God, This morning we've been shown through your word the reality of where we stand before you. That we don't deserve life. The horrificness of turning our backs on the one who made all and who loves us so dearly. Lord, we are so sorry. We ask that you would bring us to trust in your son today that we might put our lives in his hands, knowing that he has faced the, the penalty we deserve. We are so thankful for Jesus. Jesus, we are thankful that you paid the price so that we can stand free. We ask, Lord, that this truth might drive us to great joy over the life you've offered us, that it would snap us out of our complacency and push us to think through the amazingness of the message you've given us. And Lord, we ask you would give us a great sense of urgency to share with those we love and the world around us the reality, the diagnosis of where we are at. Lord, you are the one that brings people to know you. And so we pray you would use us to bring people to trust in your son so that for all eternity we might be in right relationship, enjoying the joys of you and seeing you as you are. Lord, we long that you are glorified. Amen.